Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo. June is terrific in Western New York and many folks don't realize what a top-notch bicycle town Buffalo is. Developed paths and trails through our parks, along our waterfront and our roadways beckon for all kinds of riders. I'm Peter Sabota. It's likely that most of us will need the help of a professional caregiver at some point in our lives. Who do you want to show up when you need them? In this episode, our guests Vic Comfer and Rodney Wittenberg discuss their professional experiences and their documentary film highlighting the work of professional caregivers and public servants. They've learned that a core trait and skill of all professional caregivers is empathy, an essential ingredient of the helping process and an occupational hazard. Our guests want to raise public awareness of the nature of the work of caregivers the situations of their clients, and especially the impact and potential secondary trauma on those who provide care to people in difficult situations. Our guests conclude our discussion by exploring options for caregiver self-care and address organizational structures that provide crucial peer support to help manage the stress experienced by professional caregivers. Vic Comfer, LCSW, producer, director, and educator, began his encore career in filmmaking about 12 years ago. Some of his projects include Caregivers, Treasures of the Elders, Peace of the Elders, and I Cannot Be Silent. He has worked in child and family services, geriatric counseling, and hospice services in Philadelphia for over 30 years. His exploration of the subject of secondary trauma has made it increasingly clear that society in general has many unrealistic expectations of its professional caregivers and public servants. Rodney Wittenberg, co-producer and composer, is founder of Melody Vision, where he works as a creative consultant by using skills as a composer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, producer, engineer, filmmaker, and educator. He has composed music for over 34 films and TV shows and countless dance performances. He's the creator and host of the podcast Pre-Concert, an interview show where listeners meet and preview upcoming performances. His work as a filmmaker centers around his passion for telling a story from start to finish in a creative way. Our guests were interviewed in March of 2016 by our own Susan Green, LCSW, and clinical associate professor here at the UB School of Social Work. We'd like to mention that this episode contains some background distortion that is due to technical problems we experienced while recording. Thanks, and we hope you like the podcast. I'm going to first say thank you very much to Vic and Rodney for being here with me today. I had the great pleasure and opportunity to watch the video that you produced, Portraits of Professional Caregivers, Their Passion, Their Pain. What led the two of you to produce such a film? Well, the film has been an idea I've had for a long time. I worked for 
over 20 years in child protective services as a social worker. And I realized during that time that the public has hardly an inkling, perhaps no inkling of the nature of our work, the situation of our clients, and the impact upon the social workers, emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every area, the impact of doing this kind of work. It's kind of a hidden topic, and uh, often even in the profession, we don't have enough awareness of it. We don't talk about it enough. So the primary audience for the film, from my point of view, is the public, to educate the public. But secondly, to bring these issues out into the open with the professionals themselves. So that is the inspiration that I've had for a number of years. And I got to know Rodney when I was working on a previous film. And uh, when I presented this idea to him, he lit up and he can speak for himself right now. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been working in the music and film business for the last 24 years. I just saw on my LinkedIn profile. I started my company 24 years ago. And uh, Vic came to me with this idea of uh, making a film about secondary trauma. And before he even started explaining it to me, I lit up because I knew it. Partially from my own personal life of the care I had to give to my grandmother and my dad and my grandfather when I was younger. And then through, see a nice way of saying this, through... Some of my um, significant others or partners uh, throughout my life have been social workers or therapists, and I tend to surround myself. I have a lot of friends who work in the same field that that Vic does and saw it firsthand, the impact of secondary trauma. Wow. It was a powerful uh, listen and watch for me, I'll tell you that. And I wrote down some things as I was listening, and One of the pieces, and I hope I wrote this down correctly, I remember hearing it being talked about that empathy is and can be an occupational hazard in the work that the both of you are talking about. Yes. Vic, can you tell me more about what that is referring to? Well, it's a term that both Sandra Bloom and Charles Figley have been using. It is a sort of hidden vulnerability an exposure that a very caring person has, and sometimes very unawarely, as they are reaching out and opening their heart to the person they're taking care of. And it can have an impact. And what we realize at this point in time is that it's normal, that it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It it simply means that your human, your own humanity may be touched. And it may be touched because you feel the pain and sorrow and grief that uh, is present with you in your relationship with that client or patient that you're working with. It may be touched because their experience is similar to something that's happened in your life. And it may touch you on that level. It may remind you of something. And, And if that happens... There should be no shame or stigma about that. The important thing is to be aware of when it may be happening and to reach out to one's peers or supervisor or someone that you really trust that you can debrief and address what is touching you. When we just stuff it and try to act like we're so objective and above it all, which is sometimes the professional aura that is... uh, fostered in some of our training, we're really fooling ourselves. 
and it can mean that 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 grief or suffering or trauma may affect the quality of our practice and it may affect the quality of our lives in various ways. So, Rodney, you made the comment of being a caregiver of your folks, right, and of people in your family. And I'm remembering in the film that certainly the term caregiver was spoken about, not an umbrella term, but, you know, we're talking, what, from firefighters, police officers, doctors, social workers, those of us taking care of our loved ones. Can you say more about, like, who are we talking about here in terms of caregivers? Well, we're talking about, in the case of the film, we're talking about anyone who is professionally giving care. And yes, it's sort of a loosely defined definition of care, but when you think about it, police officers' main job is to, I mean, they protect and serve us. They're there to care for us. And the same thing with firefighters and first responders and neonatal nurses and Veterans Administration psychologists, they're all there to care for us in some way. And so when Vic and I were going back and forth as to what we should call the film, we tried coming up with a number of different titles and tossed it around. And it just kept coming back to, yeah, but they're all caregivers. They're all people who give care and they all in some way have deal with trauma. And I will add that it's been really amazing as we've screened the film to find how many professions we actually left out that we didn't even think of. One of them, obviously, you could think clergy, and then there's uh, lawyers, you know, both prosecutor and defense lawyers. But the one that really struck me was uh, veterinarians and how many veterinarians suffer from the secondary trauma because of the pain that they go through having to give care to animals, and in some cases, animals that have been abused or hurt or all sorts of things. All of these professions, people go into them with the idea of wanting a deep desire to make a difference, to make the world a better place. And that has to start with a a sense of compassion that the person has even before they go into the profession. And it's really interesting, you know, as we're sitting here talking about, I never thought of adding another group to that until just now. And that's artists and musicians, because we all do the same thing too. We use our empathy and compassion in order to create work. And there is a danger there too of just going, getting a little too close and not in the same way, but it's, it's, it's interesting. We all go into this, you know, with the idea of trying to make a difference and that carries the danger of getting too close and getting burnt by the thing that we want to try and fix or help. Vic, what exactly, you know, we're talking about secondary trauma. There's a term called secondary traumatic stress, STS, or compassion fatigue we've heard of. We've also heard of vicarious trauma. What are like some signs, symptoms? What are these things? Well, there are a number of signs and symptoms, and they kind of cluster in four categories. One is in the territory of affect or feeling. Examples would be feelings of grief, loss, sadness, anger, resentment, anxiety, fear, any of those would be affective symptoms. Others would be cognitive, such as when one is feeling secondary trauma, you may have difficulty concentrating. You may be having some flashbacks and intrusive thoughts, some memory lapses, some nightmares. And no one has all these at the same time, but you could have any configuration. Uh, Another territory is physical, sleep disturbance, appetite change, fatigue, nauseousness, dizziness, rapid heartbeat. And then lastly, the behavioral territory. Sometimes a overwhelmed worker may 
begin to seem or feel antisocial, may withdraw from others. There may be avoidance, avoidance of those triggers that remind the caregiver. Sometimes uh, caregivers who are suffering from secondary trauma stop liking their clients or stop liking particular types of clients or they may change professions. I think uh, in child welfare, for example, the enormous turnover that we see, a lot of it, I'm pretty confident, has to do with secondary trauma. It's not just the lousy salaries which contribute to that problem and which is usually highlighted, but I think the emotional risks that are involved, if not also physical risks. So any of those four territories, if one is being really reading one's own self, those would be areas that you might have some signs and symptoms. Can you flush out even more for our listeners, like what is secondary traumatic stress? What is compassion fatigue? What is vicarious trauma? What is burnout? And you know what? There was actually a phrase that is in your film that it might be that you guys coined this. It's being called rust out. So if you could differentiate amongst all of those, it would be helpful. Let me start with that last one, rust out which I first heard from John Weaver, who is in the film and who is a, a very gifted Red Cross trainer as well as a volunteer. Uh, he was present right after the crash of the plane 9-11 in western Pennsylvania at Shanksville. Spent two weeks taking care of the surviving families who came in to be at that site. And he considers that, I believe, sort of a variation of the term burnout. Burnout is a little different than secondary trauma. It has to do with the overwhelming demands and expectations, the kind of unsettling and unsupportive general environment that is sometimes found in organizations. One's sort of asked to do the impossible, high caseloads being one of those characteristics, or maybe unsupportive peer interactions and supervision, or any of those things that add up to a sense of disillusionment, disappointment, one's idealism, it becomes very damaged, and people uh, are not functioning at their best. Rust out is more, the individual still is operating with integrity, still doing adequate work, maybe not at their best level, but they've lost some of their spark and their vigor and their joy about the work and the meaning of the work. So they're kind of rusting out because they don't have sufficient either self-care or organizational care. Now, those are all a little different than secondary trauma and compassion fatigue, which, by the way, are pretty much used interchangeably and they would be represented by those symptoms that I just mentioned. Vicarious trauma includes all of the above in terms of secondary and compassion fatigue, but it goes a step further and is an indication that a person's worldview, one, how one sees the world, the lenses by which one understands reality, can actually be shaken. That can be in the psychological and the spiritual territory. Maybe one becomes, with vicarious trauma, takes on a kind of cynicism or a lack of trust in the reality that they had when they entered the field. So it moves on a somewhat deeper or more global sense of awareness and the change of that awareness in terms of vicarious trauma. In the film, I believe that Dr. Bloom, Sandra Bloom, talked a bit about the cumulative effect that can occur of so much loss 
that many of these caregivers obviously witness over time. And she actually discussed a bit about the biology of it all, if you will, and the neuron systems. Any thoughts, Rodney or Vic, about some of what Dr. Bloom discussed in the film? I can just say that the thing that I was struck by was, in speaking to what you're saying, is that there is a clear biological effect on us when we experience trauma. I think that one of our goals with the film was, as Vic said, not only to educate the public, but to also change the stigma around anything that has to do with emotional or mental challenges or diagnoses or whatever you want to call them. And just having Sandra Bloom there, really making that connection between something that happens and there really being a measurable physical, tangible change in how the body's operating and functioning is, I think, a step toward both the professionals and the public to just have a greater understanding of these kind of, that this stuff is real, (laughs) that the person's not weak or damaged in some way, that this stuff is, it really needs our attention too. Rodney, thanks. Just a couple comments. Vic, I I too have been working in, in the field for a long time and my experience, too, is that this isn't, hasn't been something that certainly I was trained about when I first started out even paying attention to. And certainly, as I look through my years, I can take note of different points in time when there was some buffering effects that were helpful and then other times when I may not have been in such a great spot. With that being said... In the film, you do talk about uh, something called, what, an emotional safety plan? Can you talk more about what does that mean, an emotional safety plan? Let me speak to that, but also to your point just before, that secondary trauma can happen through a cumulative uh, effect. That is, perhaps the social worker is coping quite well with the first three, four, five incidences that one deals with, say, in a given month, but there's a certain threshold that the individual social worker may have. It's like a tipping point. It's like you can handle so much uh, emotional exposure and then it may be too much if you're not getting the nurture and and support and rest and boundaries and self-care and all those other things, which I think we'll probably be talking about. But you can also experience secondary trauma suddenly around one horrible situation. It may not be accumulative. It may be the particular trauma that you're exposed to touches you in such a singular, powerful way. Now, all of that is curative and can be resolved if one one is aware of it. Now, the emotional safety plan is a term that Sandra Bloom uses a lot in the context of the sanctuary model. And each person who is in such an atmosphere where the sanctuary model is being used has their own emotional safety plan. And it varies from individual to individual. And one thinks about, develops a plan that has at least five components at least five ways that I can calm myself down if I become overly stressed, agitated. What do I need to do to bring myself back to a zone of peacefulness where I have my best attention, where I'm truly present with my client and with others, where I'm not distracted? 
So if we're really reading ourselves and we, we realize that we're really stressed by a particular situation, what do we need to do? Now, for some people, it may be going and listening to a, a song on the radio or on one's uh, iPod. For somebody else, it might be saying a prayer. For someone else, it may be stepping outside and taking a walk in the park. Somebody else might uh, simply need to go get a drink of water or make a friendly phone call, or maybe some combination of that. So the idea of the emotional safety plan is to know really intentionally what that is and to follow it. And um, in the sanctuary model, it's my, I haven't actually been in such an organization, but it's from our documentation of it, the individuals actually write that down and carry that around on a little card Mm -hmm. that you can stick in your pocket and you pull it out and you say, oh my goodness, I'm really stressed right now. Which of these things do I need to do that I've identified ahead of time that will help me come to a calm place again? Well said. Hey, Rodney, any, any added thoughts? Again, as you listen to folks talk in the film and certainly being exposed to many folks in your own life in terms of your own field, when it comes to the idea of self-care, what are your thoughts about that regarding this issue of caregiving? I think it's so critical. And again, in figuring out how to put the film together, one of the things that Vic and I were very adamant about is that, that we would show the successes, show people who are taking care of themselves and how some institutions have implemented it. And every time I see the film with a group of people, the one thing I'm always struck by is, is the firefighters in the first responders session, because particularly as they start, the guy who's running the session starts out saying, this used to happen at the firehouse. We'd all sit around and talk to each other. Now everybody's on their phone and they don't talk. And I won't give it away, but there's some pretty amazing stories that they share with each other and the impact that it has on them. I think that having a way of taking care of yourself emotionally are critical to surviving in the modern era. And particularly if you're a caregiver, is even more important to having these plans. And, it, and even extending it to things like yoga and meditation and massage. And, and I know some people may think these are things that only you can only do if you're wealthy or if you're, uh, you have a lot of free time. But I would make the argument that it's part of doing the job, that if you're not on a plan to have some kind of regular self-care, self-maintenance, that you're going to end up just like a car that doesn't get maintenance. You're going to crash and burn and fall apart. Rodney, it causes me to think about hearing you say that it reminds me of it's almost on possibility of two different levels, certainly ourselves but also organizations, businesses, agencies, depending on, on the routine and what they put into place structurally, they themselves could allow for self-care to be more fluent within the agency or organization. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And as we show in the film, the agencies that do use particularly the Sandra Bloom's model, they are having great success in, in being able to deal with some of the issues that arise from secondary trauma. I'm really glad that, that Rodney uh, made that point because we wanted the film, and I think we've succeeded in this area, we wanted it to not just be a presentation of sort of the dark, stressful side of doing the work, but we wanted to illustrate how self-care 
is implemented by the caregivers as they figure out these ways to enjoy life and, and to balance their lives with work and play, whether it's gardening or yoga or hiking or whatever it is, spending time with your pet, your spiritual practice. But the other level there that is so important is the organization's commitment to caring for its staff. And I think sometimes we have created another burden for the caregiver, the professional, and saying, well, all you got to do is just take care of yourself. And so they're wearing that on their shoulders too, as if it's their total responsibility. What we're discovering is that it really is a responsibility of the organization to assist in this matter. And the research shows that peer support is the key because peers get it. Peers understand what each other are experiencing in a way that people on the outside, including frequently members of one's own family, cannot grasp or can't grasp at the same level. So in the film, we show not only the self-care examples, some of which Rodney pointed to, but also four different types of organizational structures. One of those is the stress first aid program of the Philadelphia Fire Department, which is peer-oriented. It's looking out for your peer who is behaving out of character after an incident, who's not himself or herself, who needs an informal outreach as to how you're doing, and then bringing that back into a group process. The sanctuary model we feature at Wordsworth, a child welfare agency, and, and how the individuals there uh, are debriefing. We get to see that in action. We have a short segment of a seminar that occurs. Um, it's led by a social worker named Laura Krawcheck, and that uh, seminar is called When Helping Hurts, a day of healing for the helping professional. So it's a retreat. It's getting away out in the country to a retreat center and very intentionally providing care to each other as peers. And then the fourth example in the film is looking at the hospice setting. And we see the hospice team in their weekly rounds where they, as part of their review of cases, at the end of it, some of the most progressive ones, in fact, many of them are taking a period of silence, of meditation, sometimes with candlelight, an opportunity to honor the memory of the patients who died that week. I mean, imagine you're on a hospice team and, and there are eight or 10 clients, you know, that your team is taking care of that may have died in a week or 10 days. Not just going on with the one's work as if everything's the same, but stopping to honor those clients and their families, but also honoring each other as team members, being able to say to your team member, it meant so much when you did this or that. I know this was really hard for you when you did that. Or, or ways that one provides within the team role a sense of support, and then one can carry on. And we're finding that these types of uh, modalities are being experimented with in a number of fields. I've been learning a great deal about the medical field, for example. One of the members of our advisory board, a retired doctor named Don Friedman, is aware of and trying to promote at Jefferson Hospital a thing called the PAUSE. And emergency medical teams come together when there is a code called, and they rush, of course, to the scene and and they try really, really hard to revive the person, and you have 
you know, all manner of specialists that come immediately to that rescue. Well, only 8% of those coding experiences succeed in keeping the person alive. And one of the things that some hospitals are now doing is that the team stops, it's called the pause, and they take a moment of silence. And they just acknowledge the death of that individual. And they acknowledge the great effort that they've all put into this attempt, whether it's successful or not. And then they go on with their day's work. So it's not, even, it's not real time consuming, but it's a way of being mindful of the moment and taking a breath and pausing. It's called the pause. You know, in the film, I think that I remember the term compassion satisfaction was used. Is that a bit about what we're talking about? It could be some resulting pieces of when we were able to do better self-care, if you will, or we're taking pause and noticing. Can you speak to the compassion satisfaction piece? Yes, well, that term was coined by Beth Hutnall Stamm, and it is that sense of meaning and joy that the work gives to the caregiver. It's a sense of purpose and accomplishment. It's the reason one went into this field in the first place, and maybe that has gotten compromised over time. So. Compassion satisfaction is getting back in touch with those qualities of the job in very specific ways. I've done a lot of training over the years in social work, and I like to use positive cases. What made this case work? Given all the extraordinary odds that were perhaps against the success and the achievement of goals in a particular case, what were all the factors? And being able to focus on that I think is so important. We have this thing in our broader culture about we'll learn from your mistakes. Well, there's something to be said for that, but I think there's also a lot to be said for learn from one's successes. Take time to reflect on that and what gave you a sense of accomplishment and of appreciation, even if something didn't turn out exactly the way you wanted it to, which is perhaps usually or frequently the case. How did it turn out? perhaps in very positive ways. So yes, I think that's what we mean by compassion satisfaction. It's powerful. I uh, once was uh, uh, shared with me from the solution-focused work that a phrase of what we notice gets bigger. And that's a bit of what I hear you talking about. What we're focused on matters. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I think mindfulness and meditation are contemporary skills and practices which are so relevant in this particular conversation. Rodney, you might want to mention how beautifully that was done at the ACE Film Festival. I I recently became a Unitarian and uh, Universal Unitarian. Uh, That's the church that my girlfriend and I go to, and it's Wellsprings. And Reverend Ken Belden is... is, uh, he studied the mindful meditation that Jefferson has Jefferson has a program in teaching or training in. And it's used throughout the whole our services and everything. So we had a screening of caregivers along with a film called Paper Tigers, which looks at the effect of trauma on youth over a lifetime. And I thought that showing both films 
back to back would be traumatic in itself. <laughs> so uh, I asked Rev Ken to come and just do a, a mindful meditation, five minute meditation in between the two films. And it was immensely powerful. Everybody who was there appreciated it, and it really helped set the tone going forward. Right after that, we had our Q&A and a little break and then the next film. But I think it got a lot of comments from people in the audience about how powerful that was for them to be able to have a moment of mindful reflection. And I would add to that that it just seems like so much of our contemporary life, even for non-caregivers, is almost like living in triage. We're always living in crisis. And the need for to clear our mind and just sit in the moment is so valuable and important. And it almost seems funny in a way because 200 years ago, people didn't know how to not live in the moment or 300 years ago, you know, because you had to do what you had to do in that moment. You need to be focused on it. And we now have this luxury that our minds can race and do all sorts of things. We can multitask, but it doesn't, it's not good for our bodies. It's not good for us. And and then I don't know, particularly caregivers who have to go into triage on a regular basis, have to go into crisis, definitely could use these techniques to not only have a better life, but also continue doing good work. I mean, one of the big things that Vic and I often talked about as we were putting the film together is that the reason for this film for the general public is that at some point in time, every individual will need help from one of these types of caregivers. And who do you want to show up when that care comes? Do you want the crazed, stressed out person suffering from secondary trauma or passion fatigue? Or do you want the centered, concerned, ready to be present caregiver? Well, the work that the two of you have done in terms of bringing such uh, real topics and real concern, I would say, that is out there around uh, making sure that we can be more well, I really appreciate, and I know others that are aware of your film appreciate the work that you did to put this together. Is there anything that I haven't asked either of you that you want to be sure that our listeners are aware of? I would say as the co-producer of the film, people are interested in a screening. They can certainly go to our website and uh, there's places there where they can request a screening of the film or purchase the educational version of the film, as well as Alexander Press also is carrying our film. And if you're looking for a theatrical screening in your area, you'd like to set one up, the, the, an organization called TUG can help you do that. That information will all be on our website. And uh, if you have some thoughts or comments after you see the film, please leave them on our Facebook page. And Vic, our website is caregiversfilm.com, and it's caregiversfacebook.com, I believe. That's caregiversfilm. And uh, yeah, leave us some comments, tell us your stories, and take care of yourself. The only thing I would add is that, picking up on that last phrase of Rodney's stories, the film is, is really driven by stories. And we're very interested in people's stories, and we encourage the professional caregivers to find outlets for those stories. When it's just stuffed down inside one's psyche, it sits there and it, it can do a certain degree of damage. Um, we have presented the film and, and workshops where people will begin to tell their story. They feel 
that they're in a trusting atmosphere, which we appreciate. And when they tell their story, it sounds like it happened yesterday, but it actually happened 20 years ago. And that's because it's been sitting there festering, and they've never really talked about it with a trusted peer or professional or someone that they, they can really release that to. So we encourage people to find a setting where they feel comfortable sharing their stories. And of course, there are many ways to do that, whether it's in groups or one-to-one or writing about it, journaling about it or uh, sharing it with us. And and, uh, when people are ready, sharing it with the world, it can be very therapeutic and healing to do that. Well, thank you. Vic Rodney, I know that UB School of Social Work appreciates your time, and certainly I do, in terms of taking the time to share with us all what it is that you're doing and the passion that you have for this work. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You have been listening to Vic Comfer and Rodney Wittenberg discuss the passion and pain of professional caregivers on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.